Welcome to Daily Power Parsha for Tuesday, April 26th, 2022. And we are going to continue studying the Torah portion of Achrei. We learned yesterday, we started the, the Torah's conversation about the rituals associated with the day of Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur. Specifically vis-a-vis the high priest's avoda, the service that the high priest does in the temple or in the Mishkan, as it were, initially. And uh, it, involves, <coughs> it involves a bull, two goats, and other, other uh, ritual items as well. We noted la- uh, yesterday in our conversation that the high priest was only allowed to go into the Holy of Holies once a year on Yom Kippur. Any other time would be a death sentence. It would be a, a, fatal, a fatal act to go into that holy space. The Torah references this commandment about Yom Kippur and the permission for the high priest to go in to the Holy of Holies, the Torah uses the reference point of the passing of Aaron's two sons, which indicates perhaps that they went into a space where they were not supposed to go. And the message is to Aaron and to his sons and further future generations, do not go into that space unless you're the high priest and it's the holy day of Yom Kippur. Otherwise, not uh, not not a good thing to do. At the end of yesterday's reading, we had a beautiful verse, and just want to, want to reset with that, that talked about how when the high priest does the service in the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, no one else is with him. He is alone. No man shall be in that space. Simple meaning is no other man. Deeper meaning is even he was not a man on that day because of the sacred experience. We also noted yesterday that the clothing that he wore uh, were the four linen garments to specifically to go into the Holy of Holies and to do that Yom Kippur-related service. He would change out of the eight garments that had gold into the four garments of pure white linen. And uh, in that way, he would uh, uh, help to secure atonement for the people wearing those white garments, simple, pure white garments. Okay, let's jump into reading number two that I have uh, already lined up for us for today. Torah reading uh, again, Achrei, reading to Leviticus chapter 16, verse number 18. Torah continues with the instructions to the high priest. And he shall then, and this is God telling Moses to tell Aaron, he shall then go out to the altar that is before the Lord and effect atonement upon it. Oh, by the way, this is after he's already sacrificed the bull, uh, the sin offering bull and the sin offering goat brought their bloods into the Holy of Holies, sprinkled them towards the ark. And after, he's also brought the incense and, and uh, burned the incense in the Holy of Holies to make a cloud over the ark. So at this point, he goes out to the altar that is before the Lord. And that's typically a reference to the outer altar, as we saw yesterday. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the he goat's blood. Again, those are the two offerings that were brought so far, the bull and the goat. So he takes the, uh, sorry, goat, takes the bull and the goat's blood, and he places it on the horns of the altar around. Let's actually see Rashi, which I, as I was saying that I recall that I don't think I was correct there, I misspoke. The altar that is before the Lord is a reference to the golden altar, which is the inner altar. Before the Lord in the Hechel, I in the temple, was the Hechel, um, equivalent to the hole in the Mishkan. So basically, I misspoke. It's not the outer altar, it's the inner altar. So he goes, again, he's going, he sacrifices, slaughters the bull and the goat outside the, Mish- uh, the, the tabernacle building, 
goes inside to the Holy of Holies, does some blood, he does the incense over there, and then he goes out of the curtain and he does additional blood placement, if you will, right? Takes some of the blood and places it on the horns. That's the inner altar, as Rashi clarifies. Okay, um, let's, let's talk to Rashi. Yes. At this point, have his sons already been killed? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Aaron's sons had already lost their lives um, prior to this, to this communication. Now, this communication wasn't directly to Aaron. It was God to Moses to then relay to Aaron. And again, that was the reference point. The reference point was, um, post the death of his two sons, here's what you need to know about when you can go, where you can go, and when you can go, and what context you can go into that space. So that's kind of the, um, the limitations that are put on it in reference to that prior passing of his two sons. So he goes out from the Holy of Holies to the inner altar. That's the altar that's in the Kodesh, in the Holies, or the Heichal, as it was called in the Temple, as Rashi says. That's the golden incense altar, typically the altar that only uh, burns incense. And he takes some of the bull's blood and some of the he goat's blood and places it on the horn uh, place it on the horns of the altar round. Let's continue. He shall then sprinkle some of the blood upon it, upon it meaning upon this inner golden altar, with his index finger seven times, and he shall cleanse it and sanctify it of the defilements of the children of Israel. And again, that will cleanse and sanctify the tumah, the defilements, the impurities of the children of Israel, i.e. their sins. By the way, um, the language of the Torah, v'tiharoi, v'kidshoi, the cleansing and sanctifying, it's an interesting terminology, doesn't use the word atone, cleanse and sanctify, that has significance. We'll speak a, a little bit about that tomorrow night in our Torah studies class, but just something to keep in mind, the language here, um, it, it says atonement here in verse 18, it says atonement in verse 20, but in verse 19 it uses the phrase cleanse, and sanctify, which is interesting and certainly significant. All right, so let's continue. So he, he sprinkles the blood on that inner altar. Verse 20, and he shall finish effecting atonement for the holy, the tent of meeting and the altar, and he shall then bring, and sorry, he shall bring the live he goat. Now the live he goat, if you recall, there were two goats. And I mentioned before, I mentioned yesterday, that the two goats were meant to look identical. Identical height, identical look, they were supposed to be, they were supposed to look like twins. One was designated Hashem to God, to offer as a sacrifice, and the other one, Azazel to be sent away. And we said away is not just, you know, into the wild, but actually sent off the edge of a cliff. Yeah, off the edge of a cliff. So at this point now, the bull has been brought as an offering. The one goat has been brought as an offering to God. What about the second goat? Here we go. That's what we're, that's what we're turning our, our attention to right now. So then he shall bring the live he goat, verse 21. Let's see what happens with that goat. And Aaron shall lean both of his hands forcefully upon the live he goat's head. So he puts his hands on the head of the goat. And he should confess upon it all the willful transgressions of the children of Israel, all their rebellions, and all their unintentional sins. And again, pay attention to these three categories. We have transgressions. Rebellions and unintentional sins. Three different categories. Transgressions, 
rebellions, and unintentional sins. In the Hebrew, it's avonot, pishehem, and chatosam. Those are the three categories. Transgressions, rebellions, and unintentional sins. So he confesses these, verbally confesses, upon this goat, so to speak, and he shall place them on the he-goat's head. Place them, place what? He means like conceptually, kind of associate them with the he-goat, and he should send it off to the desert with a timely man. <laughs> Someone who showed up on time. Now sends it to a desert with a timely man, and that's somebody who can get this done, as we'll see in Rashi. Thus, sorry, not thus, the, verse 22, the he-goat shall thus carry upon itself all their sins to a precipitous land. The precipitous land, by the way, means the cliff. And he shall then send, sorry, and he shall send off the he-goat into the desert. Okay. Um, let's just wrap it. It's a short reading, so we'll just conclude, then we'll read Rashi, then we'll move on to the next reading. And Aaron shall enter the tent of meeting, after all this is done, and he shall remove the linen garments that he had worn when he came into the holy, and there, there he shall store them away. So basically, um, to continue the rest of the service, he is supposed to um, he is supposed to remove the linen garments that he wore, and he basically um, gets back into the regular garments for other parts of the service, and he shall immerse his flesh in a holy place and don his garments. He shall then go out and sacrifice his burnt offering and the people's burnt offering, and he shall effect atonement for himself and for the people. Okay, so that is that. Let's go into, let's go into Rashi and let's see what is going on over here, what we missed, and fill in some details. So number one, the altar that he sprinkles the blood of, uh, the, blood of the bull and the he-goat, we explained before, that is the golden altar. So that's a, a point of clarification. That is the golden altar. Um, okay. Uh, he affects atonement upon it. Rashi says, what is the procedure that affects the atonement? He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the he-goat's blood. And Rashi points out from our sages, one mingled with the other. He doesn't do them separately. He actually mixes the two bloods together from the bull and the goat and then applies it and sprinkles it toward and on, upon and toward that altar, the inner altar. Then uh, he shall sprinkle some of the blood seven times. After he has applied the blood with his index finger on its horns, he shall then sprinkle seven sprinklings on the top. Okay, give me a quick second here. Hold on, hold on. Um, folks, it looks like I may need to bounce out of this room for a second, so I'm stopping video and um, pausing for a second. Stay with me as I move locales. All right, we're on the move here. DPP on the run. DPP in motion. Guys, we can come in now. I know. Oh, and the other celebrities when they do stuff like that, isn't Have Torah will travel is our motto always. <laughs> right? Listen, this is not new. We've had to... Uh, to bounce around from place to place throughout our history. So, uh, well, it's all part of the plan. All right, magically, 
we will resume in a new location. And you'll wonder, ah, how'd that even happen? It would be cool if the if, it would be cool if like the Eiffel Tower suddenly appeared, but it's not gonna. But it won't be the Eiffel Tower. It'll just be a wall. Okay, so um, we were talking about the um, the sprinklings of the blood. So again, the bloods were mixed together and they were applied on the altar, then sprinkled seven times. Um, and he shall cleanse, no, and sanctify it. No, let's skip that. A timely man. Oh, so what does it mean that he sends off the Azazel goat, the goat to be sent away with a timely man? Right, what does that mean? It's such a very intriguing word, uh, phrase. Rashi says, one who had been prepared for this from the day before. Still cryptic, by the way. What does it mean, a timely man? Someone who was designated the, um, the day before. In other words, you don't say, hey, you, go grab this goat and take it out into the, uh, into the wilderness. You actually appoint someone in advance to, uh, to take care of that. Okay, that makes sense. Let's continue. And Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting. A rabbi stated in the Talmud and the Medrash that this is not the correct chronological place for this verse. Okay, and they gave the reason for this in Tractate Yoma. They said the whole passage is in chronological order, except for this entry. For this fall, the performance of his burnt offering and the people's burnt offering and the burning of the sacrificial parts of the bull and the he-goat, which were performed outside the Holy of Holies with the Kohen Gadol attired in golden garments. Then he would immerse himself, sanctify his hands and feet with water from the washstand, remove them, uh, his golden garments, and don his white garments. So essentially, what's going on over here is that there is a specific, and I mentioned this before when, we, when I mentioned it yesterday and earlier just a few moments ago, today he alternated between the white and the gold garments because although it was Yom Kippur, he didn't wear white garments the whole day. He only wore white garments when he was doing the, the service that was exclusive to Yom Kippur. But there were other services that he had to do because it's a normal, that's a day on the calendar and every day. For example, there's a carbon tummet, which we learned about. Carbon tummet is a daily offering. One, one lamb in the morning and one lamb in the evening. Every single day of the year, including Yom Kippur, that, that lamb in the morning and lamb in the evening is brought. That's not specific to Yom Kippur. That's an every day of the year offering. So when he brought that offering, when he did that service, he wore the gold garments. It was only when he did the, it's only when he did the exclusive atonement Yom Kippur service that he switched out into the white garments. So as he went through the day, he was going to mikvah, every, and every time he did a garment change, he went to mikvah first. He would go into the mikvah, and then come out and put on either the white garments or the gold garments, depending on what he was doing in that order. Yes, Ray. Rabbi, um, it would be a terrible thing just his son passes away, but two sons, and yet he's then able to go ahead and do all these things, it's just not human. It's, I mean, amazing. Right. I, I agree with you. Um, how he was able to continue and, and serve the people and then go into the Holy of Holies knowing about his sons, I agree with you. I, it, it certainly, you would imagine, it certainly must have been weighing on his mind on some level. You know, I, I don't know. You know, it's, I don't know what to say. I, I, you're making a very good point. Making a very good point. On a human level, you know, how did he pull it off? I don't know. I don't know. 
Um, the timeline between, look, they passed away on the first day of Nisan, which is six months before Rosh Hashanah. Right? Like right now, Passover rites were six months before Rosh Hashanah, six months before Yom Kippur. So I guess the first Yom Kippur following their passing would have been six months later. So it wasn't immediately later that he went and did the service. It would be half a year, but still, could he not be thinking about that at that time? I would imagine that was weighing on his mind. But, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, yeah, he was, this was the instruction of what to do and how to do it. But you're making a very good point. Yeah, pretty, pretty incredible. Okay, I'm just looking, oh, Rosh is on my side. I know I'm not sharing it right, right this second. Um, okay, yeah. And I, I, one other important, I was going to mention this before, but let's just read it in Rashi. Um, he, it says, when he changes out of the linen garments into the gold garments, so he shall store them away. What does that mean? Rashi says, this teaches us that they require being stored away forever, and he shall not use those four garments for any other Yom Kippur. You with me on this? When he changes out of those garments, that he doesn't store them away for the next year. That's what it seems like. Stores them away, probably next Yom Kippur. Boom, we got garments. No, he never wore them. One, one use only, these garments. One use only. It's like, um, it's like a dress, right? You wear it once. You can't wear it again. Am I wrong here? You don't wear a dress twice to... Uh, to I wore that last Yom Kippur. I can't wear that again. Like, what is this? It's a fashion faux pas, right? You can't, it doesn't work. All right, no, but, but all, all jokes aside, he literally would wear them once. The golden garments he wore every day, but you, you, the Yom Kippur garments, he, he only wore once. And I should also mention, I believe it's also from the Talmud and the Midrash, that even on Yom Kippur itself, when he changed multiple times into the, from gold to white, gold to white to gold, gold to white. Every time he, I believe he had a different set of, of white linen garments. Even on that day itself, I think he had, every time he changed into it, he had different sets that had to be a little bit more valuable than the previous set. It had to be a little bit more higher quality. Each set had to be a little bit better. Um, I believe that's the case. Uh, we'll see if we can find the Rashi on it, but that's my, my recollection. Okay, let's continue... Rashi, he shall immerse his flesh, go to mikveh, essentially. Um, above, we learned that he shall immerse in water and then don them, that when he changes from golden garments to white garments, he's required to immerse himself. For that immersion, he removed the golden garments which, with which he had performed the service of the morning tamid. As I mentioned, it's the morning daily service. And subsequently changed into white garments to perform the service of the day of Yom Kippur. Here we learn, so this verse tells us, so that was earlier in verse 4, that was yesterday. Now in verse 24, we learn that when he changes the other way around, from the white garments to golden garments, he also is required to immerse in mikvah. So the point is, whichever way he was going as far as changing garments, he would always have to go to mikvah first. So whether it's gold to white or white back to gold, he has to change, he has to first go to mikvah and then he changes the clothes. Um, bum, ba -dum, ba -dum. Okay, let's move on to reading three. All right, reading number three, Achrei, Leviticus chapter 16, 
Verse 25, let's continue. And he shall, same discussion, continuing the conversation, high priest, Yom Kippur, Holy of Holies. And he shall cause the fat of the sin offering to go up and smoke upon the altar. Now, and the person who sent off the goat, the he goat to Azazel, that's the goat that was sent out and away, that person shall immerse his garments and immerse his flesh in water, i.e. go to mikvah, and after this he may come into the camp. So the one who sent away the goat to Azazel has a trace of impurity until he goes into the mikvah. And the sin offering bull and the he goat of the sin offering, both of whose blood was brought to effect atonement in the holy, he shall take outside the camp. So both of those animals, remember he sprinkled the blood, he sacrificed, slaughtered those animals, sprinkled the blood in various, on the altar, sorry, in the ark, toward the ark, and then on the altar. Okay, what happens to the animals themselves? He takes, out, takes the animals, the actual bull and the goat, outside the camp, and they shall burn in their fire, sorry, burn in fire their hides, their flesh, and their waist. So basically, the animals are burnt outside the camp. And the person who burns them, the animals, shall immerse his garments and immerse his flesh in water. After this, he may come into the camp. Again, he also has a trace of impurity, it seems like, and he needs to go into the mikvah. And all of this, here we go, all of this, all of the above, verse 29, verse 29, all of this shall be as an eternal statute for you. That means this is a mitzvah that's going to go on for all time. In the seventh, and when? In the seventh month, on the tenth of the month, that's Yom Kippur, you shall afflict yourselves, you shall not do any work, neither the native nor the stranger who dwells among you. And this verse 29 tells us about the whole context of everything that we've been studying up until now, yesterday and today. All of this happens on the tenth day of the seventh month, seventh month from Nisan. Count with me, Nisan, Er, Sivan, Tammuz of Elul, Tishrei, 10th of Tishrei is the day of Yom Kippur. And on that day is when the high priest, everything we said, said above, the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies and brings the, the bull, the blood of the bull, and the blood of the he goat, and the incense, and all the, the white garments as opposed to the gold garments. All of the above happens on that day. And of course, the Torah also slides in that on that day you shall afflict yourselves, which, of course, we know as the day of affliction. I don't know if you know it actually as day of affliction, but it is a day of affliction. Yom Kippur is. And what does afflict mean? What does afflict mean? How do we afflict ourselves on Yom Kippur? What do we do to afflict ourselves? Help me out, guys. Yeah. Huh? What do we do? What, what do we, on Yom Kippur, how do we afflict ourselves? That's it. No food. No drink, no leather, no leather shoes, <coughs> no perfumes, no anointments, no physical intimacy. So these are the ways, the five ways in which we afflict ourselves on Yom Kippur. No, we don't take, um, you know, we don't take, uh, um, I'm trying to think like what? Not like Fight Club where you punch yourself. Thank you. You don't punch yourself. You don't like whip yourself. You don't, it's, it's, not, it's not a day of, you know, we don't hurt, we don't hurt the body. It's a day of essentially, on some level, deprivation. deprivation. Depri That's a good word. It's a day of deprivation in the sense that we don't, um, we don't satisfy our typical material, physical needs. Bodily, bodily, right, the bodily needs, like the, the eating and the drinking and 
the wearing of specifically leather. It's not you could wear comfortable shoes, but just not leather. Um, leather, no, no leather, which was considered to be like a luxury, luxury, and no perfumes or oils or anointments or creams and no intimacy. So these, the physical stuff. We don't do it. Now, how, how, where do we come up with this list? The Torah doesn't say that. The Torah says afflict. All right, you've got to study the Talmud. The Talmud has all of these ways, uh, methods of, of deriving you know, from, the, from the biblical text that afflict means these five prohibitions. Hence the, uh, the, the day of Yom Kippur. By the way, Yom Kippur, with, if, with the, had it not said, you shall, and you shall afflict yourselves, oh, by the way, afflict yourselves, Right? And it says it in a few places. It's not the only time it says it. But had the Torah not said that, Yom Kippur would have been a holiday like other holidays. You would have had a nice meal, right? You go to synagogue, ask for atonement. Um, I'm saying nowadays, have a nice meal, you know, and sleep in the afternoon because you're tired because you just ate a, a big, big meal. But that's not how Yom Kippur works, right? Yom Kippur is, it's a, uh, it's a serious day. We're all in on that day. And Back in the day, the high priest certainly was all in. It is an interesting thing to think about because back in the day, as we're reading it, it was the star of the show was one guy. Think about it, right? You had your high priest who was kind of facilitating atonement for everybody. So what did the average <coughs> what did the average person do? I mean, you would imagine that they should have done also their own personal, you know, chuva and all that stuff, but you know the. Um, Prayer takes the place of the offerings. There were prayers before the temple's destruction, certainly, but I don't believe that it was organized, you know, with a certainly not with a prayer book. It wasn't as organized as it exists today. So how long did they pray on Yom Kippur back then? It's a good question. I don't, I don't have the answer. It was proxy. It was proxy. To There's do a little it, bit of proxy. Right? So one could say, I like that word, because one could say that with destruction of the temple, part of what happens is that Judaism becomes a little bit decentralized, right? So instead of it being one place, one person, kind of one show, and you're just a little bit more of a spectator, so now you're, you're your own high priest, right? Like you got you to gotta do your own, you got you to gotta go into that innermost chamber of your own soul, get into that place with God. I mean, that's, that's, no one's doing it for you and, or me, right? We're doing it ourselves. Speaking of which, by the way, I got to share this, uh, this parable. So it's, a, it's an interesting parable. I've shared it before, and you, you, you may recognize it, but it's about Yom Kippur. The Baal Shem Tov once gave, because some people believe that the cantor, the chazan, in the synagogue on Yom Kippur takes the place of the high priest. So he'll daven, he'll pray, and, you know, we'll listen in. That's eh, not how it works. The cantor is just a cantor. So the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement, he gave, a, he gave an analogy or a parable. He taught that there was once a lion who was very angry with the rest of the animals. And if the lion is upset, ooh, everyone's in trouble. So they had a big meeting, at an emergency, late night emergency meeting. And who was there? All the animals, the bear and the lion, no, not the lion, the lion was angry. The bear and the owl and the fox and everybody, everyone was there, all the animals, the birds. and. They were discussing what to do. Well, the fox pipes up and, at some point and says, look, I have 300 stories that can just absolutely alter the mood of anyone who listens to them. They make you laugh, make you cry, make you sing, make you dance. I got this guy. Like, if we're looking to make the lion happy or whatever it is, I got this. I got stories. We're good. 
So he says, uh, <coughs> so they say, oh, great. Let's go, to, let's go to the lion. Let's appease him. You'll tell your stories. And that's it. We'll, uh, we'll breathe a sigh of relief. We'll get this, we'll get this crisis averted. But the, lion, the fox is leading the way. They're headed to the, to, the, to the lion, to the lion king, to the king lion. And uh, about a third of the way of the journey through, the, lion, the fox turns around and says, Ay! I just I forgot a hundred of the stories, a third of the stories. Panic ensues. Panic ripples through the crowd. But uh, he still has two-thirds, 200 stories. We, sh- we still should be good. All right, so they continue traveling another third of the way. He turns around and says, ah, I forgot the next part. I forgot, I forgot the next uh, 100 stories. So now there's a little bit more panic setting in, but there's still 100 stories left in the hopper, so everyone feels somewhat relieved, and they keep on going. And as they reach the lion's den, the fox turns around. They knock on the door. The, lion, the fox turns around and says... Sorry, I, you know, my, my thoughts have vanished. I have no stories at all. Upon which, oh, the place breaks out into unruly mob. You liar, you fox, You're, you, you, you deceived us, you tricked us. You never had, you never had any stories. It was a, it was a ruse. The whole, and now, you, now we're at the king's, we're at the lion's doorstep. And now what are we going to do? He turns around and he says, now what are we going to do? Now each of you are going to speak to the, speak to the lion. Each of you are going to speak to the king. And petition what you need to petition. I brought you here. Now you're going to speak. And so that's the Baal of what he says. That's what the cantor is doing. The cantor is not praying for you or for me. The cantor is helping elevate the mood, but then helping us bring us to that space. But then we got to show up and we have to speak to God directly. And that's what we're meant to do. So all of this to say that, yes, today there's no high priest. Today... You are the high priest. I am the high priest, right? We're all a high priest, and we all petition God on our own behalf, on behalf of our loved ones, etc. Okay. So the cantor can be also, we can look at it like a conductor of a symphony. Good. Oh, yeah, that's, that's, a good, that's, a good, that's a good framing, exactly. Not playing the music, but kind of... Uh, Inspiring, yeah. guiding, leading. I mean, hopefully, a good cantor. Not a good cantor. Like, who, who is this bum? I'm saying, like, there's different cantors, right? Some cantors... The best-case scenario, the cantor is a maestro, still not playing the music. Correct. Best-case scenario. Worst-case scenario, yeah, you gotta got to connect the spite to the cantor. I'm kidding. Why am I throwing cantors on the bus? I have no idea. Anyway, cantors <laughs> are all good. It's fine. But we're not relying on anyone else. That's the point. We're not relying on anyone else. But back in the day, but to create full, come full circle, back in the day, a lot was riding on the original high priest. That high priest, back in temple times, played a very important role, played a critical role in facilitating all this. It wouldn't have been anything. I mean, there was... Yeah, I mean, it still would have been a day of affliction. But you're right. I mean, what, what... That was the focal point of the day. That's what everything kind of uh, revolved around. He knew he was doing it. Like, you know that the president's getting an order. You know, you know, it's like... Yeah, it's going on over there. The temple, the temple's buzzing, right. right? There's activity over there. In fact, in our prayers, one of the most, to me, one of the most beautiful parts of the Yom Kippur prayers is as we describe... I wish I had a prayer book with me here, a holiday prayer book. As we des- um, describing the radiance of the high priest's face when he came out of the Holy of Holies. Ah, it's beautiful. And how the people saw the face of the high priest shining after he came out of that sacred space. It's like such a beautiful part of the Yom Kippur prayers. 
There's a Chabad tune that we, we typically sing along with that. Anyway, beautiful. So in Chabad, there's really not a cantor. I think there's less. there might be less cantors today than in the old days, too. I remember the cantors. Yeah. Yeah, they, you know. That, less of that a role. Was, it's also, decent, yeah, it's, it's, all, it's all along this thing. It's less of a show and more right. of a personal experience. Right. But look, Absolutely. that being said, my brother-in-law, um, married to one of Leah's sisters. I, yeah, he, I, we know he. Was yeah, right, he, right, he did the he did the dinner right. So he yeah. and they moved, but he moved recently, a few months ago, from South Africa to London, mm-hmm. and he's now a cantor over there, and he he's doing some shows there, and, and like does performances now. He's traveling, um, easier to travel to America from there than than his uh, previous you know position. But yeah, it's a, it's, it's a rare, it's a rarity. It's not the norm. In New York, there's a few places. Around the world, there's, the, there's, there's you know, handfuls of synagogues that, that still have cantors, formal cantors. Otherwise, you have somebody leading services, but not, you know, not necessarily like a trained cantorial uh, performance. And, right. you know, my brother-in-law, I, I've, I had the opportunity to hear him in South Africa a few times. They had a whole choir. Oh, my gosh. Talk about like a show. You, it's like, it's a concert. I mean, he's got a, it's all, vo- you know, it's like, I, last time I heard him was a, a Passover, um, I don't know, eight years ago, nine years ago, last time we were in South Africa, last time I was there, it was a Passover, he did Hallel, part of the morning prayers, man, that Hallel, we do Hallel in our, you know, at Chabad here, we do Hallel, we knock it out in, I don't know, 15 minutes. We did so, it Saturday. We did it Saturday, so it takes 15, you sing a few songs, those guys could be an hour long. They do pieces and the harmonies and the choir. There's intros. It's a whole intro to the thing. It's, like, it's gorgeous. It's stunning. I mean, I, I never heard a better howl. You sit back and you're like, this is, it's, like a, it's like a concert. It's like a free concert. Right? You just show up, you get, you get a concert. Look, everything has advantage and disadvantage. Advantage of going to a concert is to get a concert. The disadvantage is you might not pray. <laughs> you might not feel the need to like, participate because... You know, you're, you're there for the show. And I'm not, I'm not, uh, you can have both. Ideally, you have both. Why not? But it's, you know, it's different, different styles. The evangelical churches here, you know, the TV type churches, they all have live elaborate, bands. Yeah, elaborate, yeah, yeah, yeah. The mega churches also, they have rock the bands. They have rock bands and whatever. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Music is, but you should know that music was also always a big part of our tradition. In the temple, there were always musical accompaniments, along with the what sacrifices. Um, like harps and uh, lyres and, and other, other things. Yeah, the, the Levi and the Levites, there was an orchestra. They, they played music. They had instruments, and they did vocals also while the, um, while the services were going on, you know, the, the sacrificial service. The Levites would, play, would, would, would do the musical piece of it. Yeah, there's a very long... Uh, long-standing musical tradition in Judaism. And in synagogues, look, we have restrictions of Shabbos and instruments, so it's pretty much a cappella. That's, that's kind of you know, where, where, where we're at. Okay, let's jump back in. Hold on, let me see what we got. Can I ask you a question? So do righteous people take upon themselves to have days of affliction throughout the year? You know, that's a good question. I, back in the day, there are stories, many stories of great pious individuals who would self-exile. They would just leave their homes and they would wander for a year or more, you know, living as beggars, anonymous. You know, the great tzaddikim, great mystics, Kabbalists would do this very often. 
they would just travel as beggars and people wouldn't know who they were and they would treat them like, and that was part of their, you know, just the, to, to, to eradicate their ego inside, that was part of their like deprivation. Um, but that, the Hasidic movement started kind of teaching a bit of a different path. Even though the Hasidic movement was also made up of mystics, but it was kind of like a little bit of a new, not new, but a, but a bit of a different spin. Instead of deprivation being the holiest experience, it's more about um, integration. How to integrate the spirituality in the physical as opposed to creating an either-or structure. Because that's really an either-or. Deprivation, is, it's like, if I'm living well, if I'm sleeping on a comfortable bed, then I won't, I just, I won't be able to be spiritual. That's like, right, either-or. Whereas the integration model is more of, you know, let me live a comfortable, good life and have what I need, but all for a higher purpose which is a little bit of a, you know, it's, it's actually a little harder on some level. Okay, easy for me to say in a comfortable padded chair, that uh, integration with the padded chair, studying Torah in a padded chair is, is more important slash harder, right, than, than, than living out in the forest and sitting down on a, people would sit down on like ant, ant, like biting ants, they would like, you know, like get ants to bite them to, to, to harm their, that's not a practice that's been done for a while, and it's not considered to be... But look, it's not considered to be an ideal today. Now, look, could it be that um, the physical body changed? Sure. Could it be that... I mean, the author writes in Tanya that back in the day, there are many books that talk about how many fasts a person should take upon themselves for various transgressions. Like, if you did this, that, or the other, 50 fasts, 40 fasts, 80 fasts, whatever. Fast, like F-A-S-T-S is like Yom Kippur fast. I mean, maybe not the 24 hours, like a 12-hour fast, whatever it is, like a daytime thing. But the author Rebbe says, oh, this is already in 1798, he published Tanya, he says that that's not for us anymore. We're not fasting. It's just the bo- Our bodies can't handle it. It's what he says. The physical body is no longer, no, can no longer handle it. It sounds like he's saying that the biology's changed or adapted or got weaker over the years. And he says instead... Our way to do this is by giving tzedakah. You give tzedakah in the amount of a meal, you give away the money of a meal, and it's like you fasted for that meal. doesn't mean you can't eat it. It means that you're giving to tzedakah. That's, he says, replace fast with tzedakah. Now, one second. Don't make a donation and take Yom Kippur off. Yom Kippur is still Yom Kippur. It's a biblical, it's a biblical thing. But as far as personal purification, personal refinement, fasting today is going to do more, he says, Additional fasting is going to do more harm to the body than good. You want to, you want to like, accomplish good? Give tzedakah. It also hurts on some level, right? You're giving away. You're giving, you're giving away. It's also deprivation. You, I could have spent it on myself. I'm giving it away. Fine. I mean, ultimately, it's like the greatest good and the greatest blessing for us is when we give. But nonetheless, that's, uh, that's what the Alter says. So I'm saying that to, to point out that, yeah, it could be that, you know, we change and people change and that sort of thing. All right, let's get back inside, and let's see um, how we, yeah. So let's, so the Torah says all of this is done when? Yom Kippur. Seventh month, tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves, no work, right? It's a non-work day, etc. For on this day, Yom Kippur, Yom, Yom Kippur, he shall, have, God shall effect atonement for you to cleanse you. Before the Lord, you shall be cleansed from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of rest for you. 
and you shall afflict yourselves. Just in case you were wondering if you read that right. Yes, you shall afflict yourselves. It, uh, it is an eternal statute. And the Kohen who is anointed or, or who is invested to serve in his father's stead shall affect this atonement. Right? The Kohen who is anointed, that means the high priest, or who is invested to serve in his father's stead. In other words, when it's transferred to the next generation, still the high priest, right, shall affect the atonement, and he shall don the linen garments, the holy garments, as we mentioned previously, and he shall affect atonement upon the Holy of Holies, and he shall affect atonement upon the Tent of Meeting, and upon the altar, and he shall affect atonement upon the, upon the Kohanim, and upon all the people of the congregation. So here's a list of all the things that he is affecting atonement upon. And this shall be as an eternal statute for you to affect atonement upon the children of Israel for all their sins once each year. Achas, Bashana, one day a year. That's it. We only have one Yom Kippur a year. And he did... As the Lord had commanded Moses. Who's he? Probably Aaron. Probably Aaron the high priest did. As God had commanded Moses. Okay, let's jump back in to Rashi. We'll do a few Rashis. Let's check this out. Um, hold on. I'm sorry, I'm just going through this just to make sure I didn't skip anything that I wanted to read. Okay, Kohinu is anointed. The Rashi says, <coughs> The atonement on Yom Kippur is valid only through a Kohen Gadol. In other words, the only one who's going to affect atonement for the people is the high priest. Okay, since this entire passage is stated concerning Aaron, right, because... Aaron was the original Kohen Gadol. Scripture found it necessary to state that the Kohen Gadol who succeeds him is like him. In other words, this law is not just for Aaron, and then when he passes away, the institution is left bereft. No. The way this works is, the way this works is that it's, um, it's for Aaron and for his successor, um, high priest, that follows him. Okay. Um... I'm going to skip this. Yeah, to serve in his father's stead. Why does it specify father? This teaches us that if his son, if the Kohen Gadol's son can take his place, meaning that he is his equal, he's qualified, he takes precedence over everyone else. So the first, when you're looking for a, a successor to the high priest, you first start with the son or sons. You look at the kids, and then if, not, if they're not worthy, then you look outside that immediate family. He still has to be a Kohen, obviously, to be a Kohen Gadol. But you first start with the son, and then you branch out from there. And he did as the Lord had commanded Moses, the last Rashi, and then we'll close it out. Rashi says, i.e., when Yom Kippur arrived, which was, again, six months later, Aaron performed the service according to this order. And this verse is written to tell us Aaron's praise, namely that he did not don those special garments of the Kohen Gadol for his self-aggrandizement. He didn't feel good, you know, ego boost putting on those special garments, but rather he, he wore them as one who was fulfilling the king's decree. In other words, he wore them out of a sense of obligation, not, as, not out of a sense of pride and ego. Thus, he did as the Lord had commanded, and this serves the beautiful lesson that we'll conclude today's um, session with, and the lesson is that when doing a mitzvah, it might make us feel good, but at the end of the day, the power of a mitzvah is because it's a divine commandment. That's what the king, that's what God has told us to do. And it doesn't mean, 
in our context. It doesn't mean that if you feel good about doing a mitzvah, oh, it's terrible, you ruined the mitzvah. No, it's okay. But, at the, but, but the, ultimate, the ultimate objective of a mitzvah is to fulfill what God wants from us. Even the understanding about a mitzvah, as we discussed many times, even the fact that we understand and explore and study, that is also a divine commandment. We study also out of a sense of obligations. God said you should know what to do. God says you should understand that. God says you should have it, uh, you wrap your head around it. So we study. But we don't do it out of a sense of ego and selfishness. We do it out of a sense of duty and obligation. And this binds us to the, the one who gave us the commandment, i.e. God, in a, uh, a very strong bind. Otherwise, we would just be doing it to fulfill our own ego and our own desires, which would only connect us with ourselves, which is a very limited experience. But this way, by feeling that sense of duty, we're able to transcend the immediate experience and make it a divine connective experience. All right, that takes us to the end of today's session. Um, and it really takes us to the end of the Torah's description of the Yom Kippur service. Tomorrow, we're going to continue. Um, we, I'm looking quickly at tomorrow's reading. We're going to look at other laws regarding sacrifices. Um, yeah. It's just other, other sacrifices and laws regarding that. And then we're going to get into laws of forbidden relationships. All of that is going to come up in the next few days. But this, what we've done so far, readings 1, 2, and 3, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, although like over Monday and Tuesday, this really closes out the Avodah, the service of Yom Kippur. If you want to know more about it and all the details, so you could study the Mishnah, the Talmud, Tractate Yoma, and, or you can look in the Machzer and the prayer book on uh, Yom Kippur, the Yom Kippur prayer book, which again, just blow by blow, like step by step outlines what the high priest did on that day. And it pretty much follows what we described here. All right, yeah, Ray. Yeah. So that makes me um, think of um, a Tisha B'Av that I was in Israel. My daughter was in seminary. And we all went on a bus to a hill overlooking the Kotel. And we all have a jar with a lit candle and the rabbis uh, reading whatever we read that night. And then we get up and I'm feeling really weird. I had been sitting, we were in an oregano patch and all these little ants had, had been made. So you could call yourself a, that, it was a beautiful call yourself a mystic and a tzaddik who's, who's, who's undergoing self... Um, you know, a self-refinement by, by virtue of ants. But by the way, that's what they used to do. Back in the, I'm saying like 500 years ago, more. That's what great Sadiqim used to do. They used to travel around and just, you know, deprive themselves or whatever. It was really an innovation of the Hasidic movement and the, you know, that, that kind of spun things in a much more positive, you know, happy, <laughs> a bit of a different uh, perspective. But yeah, that sounds like um, a non-comfortable... Um, part of the experience for you. Right. <laughs> anyway. All right, good. Yes. That's, we get a story out of it, at least. Uh, at least you can look back now and then uh, talk about it. All right. I'm going to sign off. Great to see you all. Don't forget, tonight, no class. Pleasure, Sarah. Tonight, no class. Tomorrow, DPP, as always. Wednesday, tomorrow night, we launch our brand new Torah study series with a class all about what we just read. 
all Yom Kippur and atonement and forgiveness and different types of sins and cleansing and purifying. We're going to weave that, all of those pieces together. Some stuff that we just kind of, I mean, we just glossed over now, today, and yesterday. We're going to do a deep dive into and walk away, hopefully, with some really powerful, detailed lessons about the tshuva process and personal rehabilitation and how to turn over new leaves and all that stuff. So join me tomorrow night for that, 7.30 p.m., live and on Zoom. All right, we'll see you all. Have a wonderful day. Take care, everybody. Bye, guys.